0: Right, So we come to the end of our study of Daniel, and reaching the end together is always very meaningful. I usually cry, though I think I got most of my crying out in conjunction with last week's sermon from those last verses in chapter 12. Um, but it's very meaningful to have been through it together. I've learned so much. I hope you've learned too, but we've not just privately learned. We've walked through the book together while we walked through life together. We've talked about it. We've prayed about it. And along the way, life has taken its twists and turns, and we've seen how God had this book ready to be what we needed on the path that we didn't know was ahead when we started this book. So it's meaningful to reach the end, and it's tempting as a preacher to want to preach an amazing grand finale sermon, you know? Um, But what is, you know, I'm not so dense as to not understand that you will forget this sermon quickly. Because I forget my sermons quickly. Uh, By the way, that's why you have that handout today in your worship guide, uh, which lists for you all of the sermons and lessons from this series. And that allows you to easily go back if you want to find something, if you miss something. So what is much more important than that I preach a sermon that you're going to remember today is that you leave today concluding that the book of Daniel is a companion from the Lord. It's not some weird part of Scripture to stay away from, but it's rather a guidebook to take with you for the rest of your life until you stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Now, if you're you're new at GBC welcome. And this is awkward because this is our conclusion to 14 months together. But here's the thing. I do hope that as you listen today, what might happen is in your heart is you might say, sounds like a cool book. I want to go read that. Because uh, that, that's the point for all of us. Not, hey, we finished Daniel, now we're done. But what a great guide for all of life to take along with us. So today, we're just going to go back to our purpose statement for the book of Daniel, and we're just going to work through that purpose statement and remind ourselves about what this book is and how this book nourishes our walk with the Lord. So let's go straight to it. It's there in your handout. And remember, this statement is not Scripture. Uh, these are just my words, my best attempt to summarize the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book of Daniel is to guide, comfort, and prepare the people of God as they live under the authority of the world's political powers until Jesus comes again. So we're just going to pick that apart one phrase at a time, starting kind of in the middle with that line, as they live under the authority of the world's political powers. Daniel is a book with a uniquely geopolitical emphasis. Your earthly citizenship and the politics of your nation— form one important part of your life. And we have a privilege of living in a nation where we get to have a voice and an influence, so there may be some senses in which our nation and our politics have a larger role in our lives than for Christians in other countries where there's very little way for them to have any influence on what goes on. But either way, a Christian's earthly citizenship does make a difference. It is one important aspect of your life as you follow Jesus. At the same time, your earthly citizenship is only one aspect of your life. You also have family and work and health and recreation and church and so forth. And my point is that different parts of the Bible focus on different aspects of our lives. And Daniel is a part of the Bible that places some special emphasis on the the national, the political, the citizenship part of your life. It challenges us to consider the relationship between our earthly citizenship and and our walk with the Lord. And it does this by putting a special emphasis on governments and borders and political powers and conflicts. So the book specifically names Judah, Babylon, Greece, Persia. And even though it doesn't name it, it talks about the Roman Empire as well. It speaks of many wars and territorial conquests. That's why we say geopolitical. It speaks of Many specific rulers, either directly or indirectly, like Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, Cyrus, Alexander, a whole bunch of the Ptolemies and Seleucids, Cleopatra, Antiochus, the Maccabees, maybe even Romans like Titus. Meanwhile, the book makes no mention at all of some other aspects of Daniel's life. Take, for example, his family. What do we know about Daniel's family? I mean, other than that he must have come from a prominent uh, Jewish family in Jerusalem, we don't know anything. If he married, if he had children, not a single mention of it. So all of this emphasis on powers and rulers and all that, and no emphasis on some other aspects of life. So the book has a very strong geopolitical setting and emphasis. Now, notice two other key words in that phrase, in the purpose statement, as they live under the authority of the world's political powers government is not just an incidental part of life it is a god-ordained authority in human life it's supposed to have power to carry out god's good purposes the government's also run by sinners and sometimes evil can get such a foothold in a government that it becomes almost entirely corrupt and godless and the bad news is that a corrupt and evil government still has Power. As a matter of fact, it probably has more power because it will take to itself power beyond what God intends government to have. And then it will abuse that power and take advantage of his people. And that starts to feel really vulnerable, right? And so the authority of an evil government can become even very frightening. People are at its mercy. And throughout history, God's people have experienced that just like anyone else. Christians have sought to follow Jesus while living under governments with corrupt rulers who have frightening power that can directly impact their lives. And that's not unique in any one country. It's true of believers all around the globe. Nations have their distinct qualities and problems, but in all of them, Christians face fears and challenges as we live under the authority of sinful leaders. Wouldn't it be great if we had a book in the Bible that talked about that? that talked about how to follow Jesus when you live under the authority of the world's political powers and did it in a way that wasn't just 21st century America, but that helped people in Togo and Lebanon and China and America and in any time. It'd be so cool if there was a part of the Bible that was about that. And uh, Daniel is that. So if you want practical tips for how to be a godly husband or a wife or a parent, you're probably not going to first go to Daniel. But if you want to learn how to shine while living under the authority of the world's political powers, Daniel's a great place to start. Now, that does not at all mean that the only lessons in Daniel are about politics. There are rich teachings here about temptation and the world and prayer and seeking the Lord and loving his word and endurance and wisdom and leadership. I mean, it is a, it is a rich book that can make you a much better the husband and wife and parent and all those things. So I'm not saying that the only value of Daniel is political, but that when you look at the setting and the emphasis of Daniel, you find God's people living under the authority of bad earthly governments with all of the challenges that come with that. Now, the very end of the purpose statement also says, until Jesus comes again. One thing Daniel will not let you forget is that sinful sinful human governments won't last. It's all over the book. They won't last because God puts them up and God takes them down. And ultimately, they won't last because Jesus is coming again and pulverizing all of them. And the book then just relentlessly points ahead to the second coming of Christ. The dream in Daniel chapter 2. Ends with the second coming of Jesus and his global kingdom. Daniel chapter 7 tells of the coronation of King Jesus and his eternal reign. Daniel chapter 8 ends with the terrible, the breaking of the final terrible ruler, which happens because Jesus comes again. In Daniel 9, the 77s lead up to the moment when the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, which happens because Jesus comes again. And then in Daniel 10 through 12, they all lead up to the defeat of the final terrible ruler, the final great deliverance, and the resurrection. And that all happens in conjunction with the second coming of Christ. So the book keeps focusing us forward past whatever earthly empire we might live under looking forward to the second coming of christ in the kingdom of god okay now let's back up to the beginning and the first words are the purpose because daniel is a book with purpose not just a scrap of ancient literature that we happen to come across but a book inspired by god through daniel as the human author to be preserved and read until jesus comes again It's a book from God on purpose. Romans 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. First Corinthians 10. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. How about this next phrase? On whom the end of the ages has come. So Daniel is a book on purpose. The purpose of the book of Daniel. Just a reminder that it's one book, not two books. Even though it's tempting to divide it into two halves and maybe even skip the second half. It really is one book. And later I'm going to explain how the two parts fit together so beautifully. The purpose of the book of Daniel is to guide. So now we're going to work through those three. Guide, comfort, and prepare. Let's just take them one at a time. First, the purpose is to guide the people of God God was Daniel's guide through his life of exile in Babylon and God is our guide through our life of exile here on earth guiding us with the word by the Spirit so this book exists to guide us and God has preserved it so that it might guide his people all the way until the time of the end as we saw in chapter 12 anyone who will humbly seek the truth in this book will get God's wisdom and and God's understanding to make sense of the crazy stuff going on in the world. How many of you, once upon a time, studied the driver's handbook so that you could pass the test to get your driver's license? There we go. Okay, how many of you carry a driver's handbook around with you and regularly read it? (laughs) My hand is not up, actually. I was just... Is the book of Daniel like a driver's handbook? You study it, you figure out the cool prophecy stuff, and then you got it. It's not like that at all. The book of Daniel is something that you carry with you all through life to keep getting wisdom and understanding from it. It's a guidebook that you carry through all of life. For techies, you might think of the tools that Google and Apple Are trying to build, you know, that allow you to take a picture of something and then the phone will search the text or search the image, or you can even, you know, hold it up and there's a street in front of you. You're in some foreign country and you're totally lost trying to figure out what to do, and they're hoping your phone is going to be your trustworthy guide to get you through. Um, Daniel's supposed to be a little bit like that, or maybe you've been in a place where you've been given one of those. Recorder things that you either hold or you hang around your neck and it has headphones and as you walk from place to place You put in a little number and it tells you You know like in a museum or something. It gives you a little guided tour the book of Daniel is like that It's like a guidebook or for those of us who are really old-fashioned uh, There are these books that You used to take um, This is one of crystal nice Fun places to go in the middle of nowhere: on the Brago desert state park I know a bunch of you have been there. So this is a guidebook and it Helps you know where to go and what to do in all the nooks and crannies of Ivanza Brego. The book of Daniel is like a guidebook. You keep pulling it out to help you understand what you're seeing around you, to help you know where to go and what to do. It continues giving wisdom and understanding as the world swirls around you. So it is to guide but not only to guide, also to comfort the people of God. And it comforts us in so many ways. I'm just going to skim through nine. You could list more. Number one, here, here are nine ways the book of Daniel comforts us. Number one, remember that God's people have walked this path before you. I realize that when something goes wrong in your life, it's not necessarily comforting for somebody else to say, oh, I've been through that. And yet, sometimes it is comforting, isn't it, for someone else to say, Oh, I was, yes, I know what you're going through. I remember what that was like. And so as we watch crazy stuff happening in our nation, we've got to remember that God has gotten his people through these things many times before. There was Babylon. There was Persia. There were the Greek kings of the north and the south and Antiochus IV and Titus and the Romans. And God strengthened his people for faithfulness under all of those empires. God protected Daniel and his friends in the incredible temptations of Babylon Palace High School. He can protect you. Picture Daniel and his friends. Remember when they had to hit their knees in desperate prayer because there was a death warrant for all the wise men of Babylon? Or picture Daniel's friends standing up when everyone else was bowing down. Or picture a fiery furnace that is consuming those who even get close. Picture a lion's den that's echoing the hunger growls of the lions. And these things remind us that our trials are unique, but they're not unique. There is a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, and they have walked by faith through severe suffering under some terrible governments. And God was always faithful. So number one, remember, God's people have walked this path before you. Number two, there is comfort when we remember that earthly appearances are not the whole story. If you just looked in Daniel chapter one, it appears that God is the God of Israel is dead and gone. But the outward appearance was hardly the whole story because God was working quiet triumphs that no one could see yet in time, some of those quiet triumphs became loud triumphs that were very obvious, like the handwriting on the wall. In Daniel 5, where you have that handwriting on the wall, God was terribly blasphemed at Belshazzar's party. Again, by every appearance, God had lost. And yet, appearances weren't everything because while the party was going on in the palace, God was bringing the Persians through the aqueducts to take him down just like he had promised. So Daniel comforts us with the reminder that what you see in the headlines is not the real headlines. And what appears to be going on is hardly the whole story, especially when it comes to nations and rulers. Number three, there is comfort when we get a glimpse into the spiritual realm. We can feel very alone. We can feel very powerless. And then Daniel chapters 9 and 10 pull back the veil, and give us a little brief glimpse into a spiritual realm where God's angels comfort, strengthen, and fight on behalf of his people. And then the, clo- the curtain closes. <laughs> That's all you got to see. Just enough to comfort you of what God's doing on your behalf in a realm you cannot see. Number four, there's comfort when we trust the God who is sovereign we sang that this morning. It has often been said that if you had to summarize the book of Daniel in just two words, it'd be the last two words of Daniel 4.26, heaven rules. Or as it says two verses earlier, the most high rules. And what's the context there in Daniel chapter 4? It is an arrogant ruler who is at ease in his house and is prospering in his palace and he goes for a walk on his rooftop terrace and he says to himself, look at my great empire that I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. And immediately he was struck by God so that he thought he was an animal. He lived like an animal until he learned That God rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whomever he wants. My favorite glimpse of God's sovereignty in the book is that last verse of chapter 1. And it's then the last verse of chapter 2 and chapter 3 also where it says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel was going to be there in the pagan palaces for seven decades and nobody could root him out because God put him there. There is comfort when we trust the God who is sovereign. And similarly, number five, when we rely upon the God to whom belongs might. Earthly rulers are all about might. It is all a power game It's all a jockeying for who can get leverage and who can get authority. And the book of Daniel takes that and it it plays on it with irony. It emphasizes the futility of earthly rulers. For a time, they always look so unstoppable, but at some point they always run into a wall. Their plans begin to fall apart, their power crumbles, people turn against them, or their body just starts to fall apart. That was the point of that really challenging chapter, Daniel chapter, it's not the point, but it's one of the points in Daniel chapter 11. You go through King of the South and King of the North and this back and forth and all these battles, and it's really hard to keep up with, and it's easy to wonder, why, what, what is this? Why am I reading this? And one of the things you can watch for in that section, I think it's 11 different times that you see the futility of the rulers, their plans thwarted, or somebody assassinates them, or their, their scheme to marry off their daughter, you know, doesn't accomplish what they wanted. Why? Because human rulers aren't sovereign like God is. In contrast, Daniel 2, verse 20, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs might He doesn't just have a brief period of time when he has a lot of power. Might belongs to him. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar dared Daniel's friends. What God is there who can deliver you? And they replied, our God is able. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but he's able. Darius cried out the same thing to Daniel in the lion's den. Has your God been able to deliver you? Yes. And chapter 4, no one can stay his hand. No one can grab God's wrist and say, no, don't do that. No one can stop him. God's might also means that in the end he will bring justice. Chapter 9 says that all of his acts are righteous. In chapter 7, the Ancient of Days sits on his throne and the court sits in judgment and the books are open. And Daniel chapter 12 also looks ahead to the final judgment. And remember we had a sermon where we talked about the comfort of judgment. Might belongs to God, and so evil will only triumph for a time. Number six, there is also comfort when we listen to the God of all wisdom. Just as Daniel 2.20 says that might belongs to God, it also says that wisdom belongs to God. In Daniel, from the first chapter all the way to the last chapter, the people who don't have wisdom stand in stark contrast to the people who do. It is comforting to know that wisdom belongs to our God and he can make his people wise. And also, number seven, rejoice. Be comforted to know that God saves. As we said a couple minutes ago, When you live under bad governments, you're vulnerable. And you need to be reminded that your God is a deliverer who can deliver you anytime he wants. No government can stop him from doing that. God saved Daniel and his friends from the agenda to brainwash them in chapter 1. He saved them in chapter 2 when they were about to be killed with all the other wise men. He saved them from the fiery furnace, from the lion's den, from the Persian conquest in chapter 5. In chapter 12, we studied the great rescue at the end of the tribulation. Daniel 3, verse 29, There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. That doesn't mean that he will always rescue us from earthly suffering, obviously. But he can. And so whatever he allows is for good and eternal purposes. And whatever government is able to do, they are always on God's leash. And so when we feel our vulnerability under the authority of bad governments, there's comfort in a God who saves, who can deliver. However, our greatest vulnerability is not to the president or the governor or the Supreme Court or any legislature. Your greatest vulnerable, vulnerability is in God's court. And that King and that judge, and those laws. Because we are all sinners. And so the greatest deliverance we need is not from bad government, but from our bad hearts. We need saved from sin, and our God saves. Do you think we have to read that into the book of Daniel? because Daniel's about politics and governments and stuff, and so we have to kind of import into Daniel the idea of personal salvation. This is where Daniel chapter 9 is surprising and so important. Because it'd be so easy to read the book of Daniel and get this focus on everything that's wrong with the world and everything that's wrong with governments and everything that's wrong with rulers and all those evil people out there, and here's good little innocent me pointing my finger at all those terrible bad people out there, and you get to Daniel chapter 9, and what do you have? A big long prayer in which Daniel says, we are wicked. We are evil. I have sinned. We have got to plead for God's mercy because we are in trouble. That is really startling in the flow of the book of Daniel and so very important. God, will you take down these horrible governments? Sure, you can pray that, but that's not the prayer in Daniel 9. The prayer is, God, will you not take down me? Would you, by your mercy, save us? And God was merciful. There in chapter 9, the angel told Daniel that as soon as he began to plead for mercy, God sent his answer. And think about the mercy of God in chapter 4 upon Nebuchadnezzar. Mercy upon the rebellious Jews. Mercy upon a ruler like Nebuchadnezzar. Be comforted that the Ancient of Days, who is the king who sits as judge over all men, is also a merciful God who saves. And it is so remarkable that after the prayer of confession for sin in Daniel chapter 9, what's the end of Daniel chapter 9? It's the 77s. And what's promised is that by the end of the 77s, an anointed one will be cut off. And this will put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. There is the cross of Christ right at the end of Daniel chapter 9 after a humble prayer of personal repentance for sin at the beginning of Daniel chapter 9. So, so good. Be comforted to remember that your God saves. Number eight, accept the love that God promises to his people. When sinners humble themselves and turn to him for mercy, God not only saves them, but he loves them. Now, God is love, so it's never a surprise to find God's love in Scripture. But again, in this book full of beasts and rulers and visions and fiery furnaces and so forth, I do think it is kind of surprising. It was surprising for me to discover those three different times when God sends his angel to tell Daniel, you are are greatly loved. As you live under the authority of the world's political powers, you are greatly loved. And the book ends so tenderly, as we saw last Sunday. Be comforted by God's love. And Maybe that, I don't know where to fit this, but um, we could mention here this other startling theme in Daniel. The saints will possess the kingdom. What in the world? Through Christ, God takes his kingdom and makes it the inheritance of the people whom he loves. The saints possess the kingdom. Accept the love that God promises to his people. And then number nine, be comforted as you believe God's promises about the end result. Believe what God promises about his kingdom. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. No matter what earthly kingdom you live under, and no matter how bad or good it is, it will someday be pulverized, and God's kingdom will be the only one forever. So again, the words of Jesus, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Secondly, believe what God promises about his kingdom. Jesus is found in Daniel many times. In chapter 7, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and is given eternal dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus is the stone in Daniel chapter 2, and he's probably the prince of princes in chapter 8. He's the anointed one who's cut off in chapter 9. He could be the fourth one in the fiery furnace in chapter 3, and I'm persuaded that he is the glorious man above the river in chapters 10 through 12. And then there are other just cool hints about Jesus in the book. Like, remember that moment in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar is demanding that the wise men tell him his dream? And they're like, King, you're crazy. The gods don't tell us what they're thinking and the gods don't dwell with human flesh. And all of us who know Jesus say, Hmm, is he not the word made flesh? The word of God for man to reveal God's mind and words to us and God with us. So don't get so focused on bad earthly rulers that you lose the comfort of the true king of kings. Believe what God promises about his kingdom, about his king, and about your end. That was last Sunday's sermon, verse chapter 12, verse 13. You will rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Be comforted by God's promises. And it is helpful in this regard to remember that the whole book of Daniel sits in the context of a promise-keeping God. And we can see that in a couple major ways. First of all, remember that the reason why they were in exile was because God had been promising it for 700 years or more. And so the, the very fact of Daniel chapter one demonstrates that God keeps his promises because God had promised them over and over and over again that he would send them into exile. But, but not just that. He promised them that it would be the Babylonians who would do it. And who did it? The Babylonians. And he promised them that it would be for 70 years. And how long was it? 70 years. And long before the Persians were even a thing, he named Cyrus as the Persian ruler who would send them back at the end of it. And He did. And so the whole book sits in the context of God keeping his promises. And then the book has all of these prophecies about all these rulers that were going to come to power in the centuries after Daniel. And it all happened to such an incredible degree that unbelieving scholars just continue to try to figure out if there's any way they could prove that Daniel was actually written in the 160s BC. And the problem is just that all the evidence is stacked against them. They just can't do it. But they're desperate to do it because how could, how could somebody have written and known all this stuff? Well, it's because there's a God who knows everything and he keeps all of his promises and he does whatever he wants to do. And he will do what he says he's going to do. So believe what God promises about his king, about his kingdom, and about your, your future. Be comforted. The book guides... The book comforts, and then finally, the book prepares the people of God. Every trustworthy guide knows the path ahead. And the book of Daniel shows us that God knows, just as we talked about. God knew the road ahead, and he knows the road ahead of us too. So the book of Daniel prepares us for the road ahead so that we won't be surprised by what's coming. One of my joys as a dad has been to take my girls on their first roller coaster ride. And I, I think I only got to do it with three out of four. I don't think I got to do Nadia, actually. But I think for all of them, their first roller coaster was this little dino coaster at Legoland. Many of you will know what I'm talking about. It's a little oval, it goes like this, um, it's meant for little kids. Um, It's a great first roller coaster. But one time, I went on that roller coaster, and I don't know which of the girls was with me or if it was both of the older two, but I just was not paying attention. And that thing whipped around that first turn, and I was totally paying no attention. I was not ready at all. And I screamed like the five year old girl. (laughs) And they have never let me live this down. I wasn't ready. God uses this book to get you ready for life's sharp turns and government's sharp turns. For example, just one example, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his friends faced an agenda to brainwash them and completely change their identity. Does that sound familiar to anyone? But if you know Daniel 1, you shouldn't have been surprised. And we could continue with so many other examples of that. This also helps us have backbone and stand firmly. I didn't brace myself for that turn on the dino coaster. Daniel helps us brace ourselves so that we can stand. But Daniel not only says, here's what's coming, don't be surprised, hold tight. It also says, here's how to handle it. And this is where we can really see how the two parts of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6 and chapters 7 through 12, combine perfectly into one book. Think of it like this. The Kansas City Chiefs recently won the Super Bowl. You know, they beat the Eagles. It was a really dominating second half. I was cheering for the Eagles, but it was really impressive. And so the Chiefs won. And let's pretend, not hard to imagine, let's pretend we're an NFL team here, and we're getting ready for the new season. And the coach calls all of us into the film room and he sits us down and he shows us game film from a team that soundly beat the Chiefs last season. And we watch how this team beats the Chiefs and we, you know, we say, you know, thanks coach. That was good. We, you know, we learned some things from that. And the next day we come back to practice and the coach says, all right, new schedule has been released. Game one, we play the Kansas City Chiefs. You know what we might say next? Next. Could we go watch that game film again (laughs) that you showed us yesterday? Now that we know that that's who we're going to play in week one? Well, the book of Daniel works like that. You read the first six chapters of Daniel and you see Daniel and his friends living faithfully under terrible governments. And you say, hmm, that's helpful. Thank you. I learned some things. And then you read the last six chapters of Daniel, and it basically says, you're going to live under really bad governments until Jesus comes again. And then we say, oh, can we go back to those first six chapters and read that again and see how they live faithfully under really bad governments? The first first half shows you how to live faithfully under bad governments. The second half shows you how bad governments are going to be until Jesus comes again, which makes you want to go back to the first half again. Now, there's much more to the book of Daniel than that. Obviously, I'm super oversimplifying. But I'm trying to help us see that Daniel is really one book, not two. The first half shows you how to survive the second half, and the second half motivates you to go back and learn from the first half. One book brilliantly unified by the inspiration of God to guide, comfort, and prepare you as you live under the authority of the world's political powers until Jesus comes again. All right, now we could stop right there, but there are two final clarifications that are very important. The Pacific Crest Trail runs 2,650 miles from border of Mexico to border of Canada, and I was shocked to find out that about 70% of the people who try to go the whole distance attempt it alone. That doesn't mean that there aren't some segments that they hike together, but 70% are trying it alone. And so as we talk about the book of Daniel as a guidebook for us, as we hike through the world, first of all, we have to make sure that we're not picturing something like a solo hike on the Pacific Crest Trail. Because there are two reasons why that, that picture, in other words, the picture of me with my guidebook going through life by myself is a bad picture. Daniel as a guidebook is a good picture. Me by myself with Daniel as a guidebook is a bad picture for two reasons. First of all, living faithfully for the Lord under the world's political powers is not meant to be done alone. You know, one of the, one of the it's easy for us to forget this, but you, you get these moments when you're reminded of it. One of the most famous stories in the book of Daniel isn't about Daniel, Right? There is no Daniel in the fiery furnace. It's the other three guys who are easily forgotten because they didn't get the book name for them. And they didn't receive the revelations. God gave those to Daniel later. And yet they're very important. They, from the very beginning, they're there in chapter 1 because they were taken captive with Daniel. Daniel. And so they, and then we see in chapter one, they stood with Daniel. Even though Daniel was the leader, they stood with him when he took the stand regarding the king's food. And in chapter two, we see that as young adult men, they were roommates together because they're praying together in their house when their lives were on the line. And in chapter three, then, they were the ones who faced the fiery furnace. So Daniel was not alone. God had brothers there to walk with him. And so we've gone through this book, not just as individuals doing a Bible study, but as a church family, learning together as we share life together. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Okay, so now we've added to our picture that there's a group of us with our guidebook, right, as we go through this. But then we have to add to that picture the one more step, and it's what we've really emphasized the last few Sundays in chapter 12, and that is that we can't just keep it to ourselves, God's people are supposed to shine in the darkness of the world. Daniel lived in a fishbowl for 70 years in Babylon. And God calls us to be fishbowl kind of people. And I know that most of us would rather get a ranch somewhere in the middle of nowhere and get a long ways away from people. And that would be great, and we could just read our Bible, and it would be wonderful. But that is not what God called us to. Jesus prayed to the Father, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He said to us, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Just as Daniel 12 called us to shine brightly in the darkness of the night. Daniel shone for the Lord not because he went and hid, but because he lived faithfully in the midst of an unfaithful world. So that's our calling too. We could break it down into three steps like this. First, Daniel calls us to be in the world, but not of it. The book shows a strong conviction. Refusing to live like the world. Refusing to compromise with the world. But also not withdrawing so that our light is hidden from the world. Next, Daniel also calls us to be equipped with the word of God as we live in the world, but not of the world. In, in, the, in the pictures of Daniel, it's to be there when the king has a sleepless night and he's troubled because he can't understand his dream. But there's one of God's people with answers. To be there when the king's, chapter 5, when the king's knees are knocking and his face is deathly white and all the lords of the land are perplexed. I know you won't be there for the king, but who will you be there for when they're ashen with the news they just got? To be there when the world's wisdom comes up empty again. Chapter 12, to be there when people are running to and fro, trying to understand what's going on. To be there when the world's plunging even further into darkness, ready to help people understand and to turn many to righteousness. So God calls us to be, Daniel calls us to be in the world, not of it, to be equipped with the word of God in the world. And thirdly, it calls us to care. This is a subtle aspect of the book of Daniel that it's easy to miss. But it is remarkable the respect and the care that he demonstrated toward the bad rulers who were over him. Despite the evils that we're doing, it's clear that he truly cared for lost men like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius. And you can see that in the way he talked to them and the way he treated them. He saw past the politics to their value as human beings. So first of all, we picture ourselves with Daniel as this guidebook all the way to the end of our lives. Then we picture ourselves together with the guidebook all the way to the end of our lives. And then we picture ourselves with our guidebook journeying through life and we look out and there are people who are completely lost. And when you're out in the middle of a desert like this, being lost can be really, really dangerous. So what do we say? We say, boy, they should have been as smart as me and picked up a guidebook. Now... God gives us his heart of love and care and mercy, and we say, how could we help them know and understand? How could we be God's light in the darkness? So as we finish this series, I'm calling us to not leave Daniel behind like the driver's handbook, but to take it along as a guidebook all the way to the end, but not just as a private guidebook, but something we tear together as a church family, walking together, understanding together, And not just in isolation from the world, but living holy lives in the world, equipped with the word, caring for those who are stumbling in the darkness. As the darkness deepens, and as we get ever closer to the darkest days of all. Because Daniel tells us that's what's coming. We don't know when, but we know that the darkest days of all are coming. And so we live not just in isolation from the world, but living holy lives in the world, equipped with the word, caring for those who are stumbling in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for all that we have learned from your word. Thank you for a church family that loves your word so that we've gotten to learn together. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for guiding us. And I pray that you might use this book as part of all of Scripture, to continue to make us wise people, to people who have your understanding, even as the world swirls around us. And I pray that you would fill our hearts with your love for those who are just completely stumbling around in darkness and headed toward eternity without truth. May we be people who don't hide the light, but shine.